Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Um, Most of you know me well enough at this point to know that I'm not much of an overachiever. Uh, Some of you know Georgia well enough to know that, for the most part, the same can be said of her. And... um, It's probably one of the things that attracted us to each other in the first place. But uh, it is funny how children differ from their parents, and uh, sometimes I look at my kids and wonder where on earth they came from. But one instance would be Grace, because Grace, if nothing else, is certainly an overachiever. And one of the primary ways she demonstrates this is by her reading habits. She has read more in her 15 years than I have in my 38, so... And she doesn't just read the books, she also now reviews them online. And not just little books either, she's currently obsessed with Russian novels, which are all long and all sad. And so for Christmas I got her several more. And um, she's now reading Anna Karenina because that's the kind of nerd she is, I love her. Um, And I know I will never catch up with her in her reading, but I have one thing in this category I can hold over her. I read War and Peace, and I didn't exactly enjoy it, but I did read it. And uh, since she has vowed not to bother reading that one, it's the only thing I can hold over her. Now, for those of you who have never read Tolstoy's masterpiece, uh, not to spoil anything, I know many of you were planning on reading it this summer, but it's, it's about war and peace, and Russia, kind of like the news this week. Uh, Now, to go along with Grace's obsession with Russian literature now, uh, I've talked her into starting to watch Chernobyl with me, the HBO special. It's very good. Uh, We started it on Wednesday night late, uh, because Georgia was out of town and didn't want to watch it, so I'm watching it with her. Uh, And... We got halfway through the episode only for me to be interrupted by a phone call from my brother uh, calling to tell me that Russia had invaded Ukraine. And, of course, Chernobyl is in Ukraine. Uh, Two days later, I heard the sort of surprising news that there was an intense firefight going on in Chernobyl because the nuclear wasteland that is known as Chernobyl, uh, Russia apparently wants it back. Why? I don't know. Uh, More than once this week, I've asked myself, do these people even know what they're fighting for? Uh, Maybe not, but uh, in in any event, I I think, as I thought about this verse we're looking at today, it's very applicable to the situation. I've seen it shared by multiple people on social media. Uh, Jesus tells us that the truly happy, truly blessed man is a peacemaker, And every headline this week has kind of echoed that truth, sadly, by demonstrating the opposite. What is the obvious opposite of peace? It's war, right? That's why Tolstoy names the novel the way he did, right? And and war is all anybody's been talking about all week. Uh, We live in an era where war reporting happens instantaneously. It doesn't come through rumors and we have to wait for the newspapers. The drama of war now is instantaneous, And I confess that 
I have had a very difficult time focusing on much else throughout the week because political junkie that I am, I have a very hard time looking away from news sites and Facebooks, you name it. And like many people here, I've been worried. Uh, I've been worried for the Ukrainian people. I've worried about the church there. I've worried about Pam. I was glad to hear she got out. Uh, but I also don't like that this, the thought that this war could become you know, a prelude to a wider conflict. This is the kind of thing that could affect my kids in coming years. And I thought to myself, you know, peacemakers may be blessed, at least according to Jesus, but making war seems to be a little easier. And I think that's because the world is full of angry people, aggressive people, combative people, ambitious people. That is to say it's full of people. So war is always a constant threat. And, of course, not all conflict involves full-scale military invasions, right? There are countless other kinds of military standoffs in the world, even uh, cold wars and undeclared wars and civil wars. And uh, the current war gets bigger coverage than all of that because of the size of the countries involved and because it reminds us of the world wars and the cold war. But uh, not all wars are military either. And and peace is not just a, a military term. You can have world peace and still not be at peace personally. We all kind of understand that, I think, because you can have conflicts in your home. You can have conflict at work. You can have conflict at school or in your neighborhood. You can have conflict within yourself. Uh, War and conflict may be the opposite of peace, and, and it's everywhere. Conflict is kind of the natural state of man. Just as nobody needed to be taught how to sin, Conflict comes naturally to us, and war comes naturally, and peace, on the other hand, takes work. Uh, The Greek word for peace is irene, which is where we get the female name Irene from. It's, It's a word that has a depth of meaning. War may be the direct opposite of peace, but peace is not the mere absence of war. And I think as we think about this beatitude, we need to reflect on what peace is and what peace is not, and maybe consider what it meant also to the people Jesus was speaking to originally, because people picture peace in different ways. Uh, And what one person calls peaceful might not sound very peaceful to someone else. I have heard about, and I read an article about a few months ago, this, this, I don't know, maybe you've heard of this thing, sensory deprivation. Okay. And you basically go to some spa and they put you in a tub of water, and, and, and you know it's like exactly your body temperature or something like that, and then all the lights go out, and there's absolutely no sound, and you can't feel anything, and you can't hear anything, and you can't see anything, and I think the idea is to kind of stop thinking in the process too. Some people call this peaceful. I call it terrifying. <laughs> and I know we live in an overstimulated culture, and we have too many screens, and there's too much noise generally, but people are not meant to live with that kind of silence. God gave us five senses. I don't think that we're meant to shut them out. I, I for one, need noise, some noise, to keep me sane. So what did Jesus' original thinkers, hearers, I should say, uh, think about when they heard peace? Well, one of the things that I considered is the fact that Jesus is living in the Roman Empire at this point, right? And, And he's preaching this sermon in a time... It's amidst of a long period of relative peace in that part of the world that they call the Pax Romana. That's what historians call it. That means Roman peace. Some of you remember this from world history. Some of you were paying attention. 
they didn't call it the Roman peace at this point yet, uh, but it is an old term. It wasn't used until we have a record of it about 20 years after this sermon. But nevertheless, even in this time, the Pax Romana was a real thing. And what it means in a nutshell is that Rome had basically conquered everybody. Uh, all these small warring tribes and nations, they had conquered them and they had kind of united them under one banner. And there was peace because there was hardly anyone left to fight. So peace comes at a cost. But it has benefits, too. It provided stability for economic trade and growth, and it allowed for safer travel around the Mediterranean and easier communication because everyone's speaking the same language. Now, it made life not perfect, but it made it predictable. And predictability means stability, and stability is a key element of peace. Now, you have maybe heard the term, people will say that we live now in what is called the Pax Americana. It doesn't mean that there's no war in the world at all, but it does mean that global trade has been able to thrive in large part because, really, of America's naval superiority. Love it or hate it, America provides stability of a sense, and similarly, Rome had created a relative stable political situation. But how many of Jesus' hearers felt like this Roman peace applied to them. I guess it's not many. Uh, The peace came partially at their expense, and as we all know, uh, Rome eventually is going to destroy Jerusalem in the name of peace. Uh, So again, not everyone defines peace the same way. So how should we define peace? I think we need to clarify our terms before we can apply this, because after all, if Jesus says we're supposed to make it, we need to know what it is. I can't make widgets if I don't know what widgets are. So what is peace? Well, we use the word in a lot of different ways in common parlance in the English language, right? At a bare minimum, of course, we we know that peace is the absence of war. And if we reduce it to that, I think we're all doing pretty good in that area. None of you have invaded a neighboring country this week, right? So well done. Um, Peace also means stability. The the Pax Romana describes political stability, uh, but peace might also mean stability at work. Or stability in your home. Uh, for example, if your marriage is stable, we'll say that your home has peace. It's a peaceful house. Uh, peace is also the absence of danger. Uh, not just the absence of conflict, but the sense that conflict isn't even really close. You can't have peace, really, if, if conflict is always right around the corner. Uh, internationally, for instance, you know, Finland is not technically at war with Russia, right? But Russia's been threatening them all week. That's not much of a peace, right? Or think of it more on our level, right? Uh, Think of some difficult, volatile person in your life. Someone who's really hard to be at peace with when you're around them. You're always anxious and walking on eggshells. And you may not always be fighting with them, but it's certainly not a peaceful situation. See what I mean? Uh, A peace, we we use it to mean security. We use it to mean safety. It it, it installs a sense of calm. Uh, Peace can also refer to beauty especially in nature, right? If I go to the park and I sit by the stream and, you know, there's flowers blooming, I might say, well, it's such a peaceful spot. And I'm not saying that the stream has no, you know, beef with me or something like that, right? I'm using peaceful to describe the beauty of God's creation. So we use it that way too. And peace also carries a sort of sense of freedom, right? Otherwise, if you were in prison, you could be at peace, right? As long as a as long as everything was orderly or something, right? Uh, Peace can refer to internal peace, uh, peace of mind, 
peace and quiet, just being left alone. Our, our definition of peace, the way we use it, is very broad. And I think that's good and fine. I don't think any of those things really contradict Scripture. But I will say that the more layers of meaning that you unpack, the harder it sounds to be a peacemaker. Because a lot of peace, a lot of what makes for peace, kind of, it's beyond our control. If I could reduce peace to just the absence of warfare, I think this would be much easier. This would, honestly, it would be the easiest beatitude we've come across so far. But what I'm trying to say is that even in common English use, peace is so much bigger. It encompasses so many things, and the same is true, as we're going to see in a little bit, in Scripture. If Jesus had said, blessed are the pacifists, then this would be a doable one, right? Because anyone can be a hippie, or a Mennonite, if you want to skip the the drug part. Um, But Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. It's not enough to be opposed to war and conflict. He is commanding us to actively go and make peace. And it's not enough for us to have peace within ourselves. Because peace requires at least two parties to sign the peace treaty, right? I can't really make peace with myself. That's kind of a meaningless statement. This verse is not endorsing a schizophrenic uh, schizophrenic approach to things. It sounds like Jesus wants us to go out and actively create peace with other people. Now, that already kind of feels unfair, doesn't it? Because I know... How can I make peace if peace depends on everyone else being in on this too? If peace is not a one-man act, it depends on too many factors. And just because I come into a situation with a peaceful attitude, it doesn't mean everyone else does. I can be a peaceful guy without being much of a peacemaker. Preferring peace doesn't make you a peacemaker. Neither does simply declaring peace make you a peacemaker. One of the things that Scripture condemns in multiple locations, especially in the Old Testament, is people who say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah says such people heal wounds lightly, meaning they don't take the conflict very seriously. Other people take conflict very seriously, but that doesn't mean they can make peace. You know, every year, the Nobel Committee uh, gives out a peace prize to, to people, and they're sometimes wonderful people who, who have been fighting, striving for peace in their home country somewhere. But kind of the common thread to all of them is that none of them have succeeded. They give it to, like, political dissidents who just managed to escape, like half-starved and half-crazy from a gulag somewhere. And and the Peace Prize is kind of like your consolation prize for giving it the old college try. You didn't make peace, but thanks for playing. You know, that kind of thing. Here's a prize. And peace, peace just has a lot of enemies. There is war. There's occupations. There's sort of false peace. There's indifference. There's isolationism. Factionalism is an enemy of peace. Having a peace at all costs mentality ends up costing you peace. And then on individual levels, there's, there's backbiting, and there's grudge holding, and there's bitterness, and there's unforgiveness, and there's impatience, all the things that we sometimes show to each other. And then there's the internal lack of peace, torment of soul. And when you start to think of that, and how many actors are involved with this, and how deep the problem runs, 
Yet again, it feels like Jesus is giving us an impossible task. How is anyone supposed to make peace? Seems almost presumptuous to try. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 18, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I read that, I'm like, okay, so scripture expects us to at least try to make peace, or at least live peaceably. In other words, don't be part of the problem, is kind of what Paul's getting at. You can't force peace, but you know you can refrain from throwing fuel on the fire. And that's wise, and, and I think that's good. Christians should be, of all people, the first to apologize, the first to overlook offenses, the first to be eager to smooth things over, the first to be gracious and accepting people's apologies. But as that verse implies, it doesn't always depend on you, Paul says, which means being peaceable doesn't guarantee peace. You're not the only actor in the equation. So somehow, I think, just following that verse, somehow kind of falls short of the full meaning of being a peacemaker. I think Jesus is meaning more than that here. So how do we make peace in the way Jesus means? Well, we have to think about what Scripture has to say about it. Scripture has a lot to say about peace, actually. Uh, It mentions the word over 350 times. We're not going to discuss all of the instances today. Uh, Many times it just means the absence of conflict and people getting along. Uh, uh, Many other times it appears in the form of a greeting. People will say, go in peace, that kind of thing. Uh, But there's another thread of meaning and a concept which I think is unique to the scriptures, and it's the idea of peace with God himself. That's a bold concept. And why would it be important? Well, it's important for the same reason that we saw last week a little bit, that just we, we lost the right to see God face to face. We also lost peace with God when Adam fell. Everybody's talking about sanctions these days, but our entire human race has been under sanctions since Genesis 3. Sin created a permanent Cold War mentality between mankind and the God who made us. And ultimately, our main problem isn't rooted in the lack of peace among our neighbors or among nations on the world stage. Our biggest problem is not horizontal peace, it's vertical peace, peace with God. We are not naturally on good terms with our creator anymore, and if we're not at peace with God, how are we supposed to be peacemakers? All we can do at that point is cry out, peace, peace, and in vain, when there is no peace. But an idea starts to appear in, in Scripture early in the Old Testament, and it's actually one of the most frequent ways that the word peace is used, and that's for the peace offering. Uh, the peace offering is something that's mentioned over 80 times in the Old Testament, and, and the specific instructions on how to do the peace offering you can find in Leviticus 3, if you ever want to read up on it. But in a nutshell, I'll just tell you that the peace offering was designed to be something like a thanksgiving offering. It could be a free will offering, you know, just because you felt like it. it, it it's, a, it's the same offering you would give at the conclusion of a vow to thank God for that. Uh, or you could just do it to thank God for a recent deliverance of any kind. You know, it, it was the only sacrifice that the worshiper was permitted to eat some of. 
In essence, the peace offering was a celebratory offering. It's a happy offering. Leviticus doesn't say that the peace offering made peace. It almost seems to assume it. And it sounds to me like it was probably the most joyous offering you could give. The peace offering was basically the closest thing to a potluck. It was like the super Sunday for ancient Israel. Peace was something worth celebrating. And it seems like there's this underlying assumption that they are partially celebrating an an unspoken peace treaty with God. So the Old Testament is sort of scattered throughout with this hint of peace, but the more I thought about it, the more I'm thinking, I don't know how they knew that there was any justification for that sense of peace. If you look at the rest of the laws in Leviticus and throughout the Old Testament, really, and even if you look at the very specific and strict rules for how to do the peace offering, the peace kind of feels like an uneasy peace. There's a lot of rules involved. So why did God institute such an offering? It seems, it seems like you're assuming a lot to assume peace in God's presence And I thought to myself, you know, how can we have peace with God? Well, that becomes more clear in the New Testament because the sacrificial system was hinting at something that Paul makes explicit. If you want, you can turn with me because I think you can probably, if not by now, you've probably memorized that verse, right? Turn with me to Romans 5, if you like. You guys remember how to do your sword drills. Romans 5, the first 11 verses. This is actually the only place in Scripture that I found, at least in the ESV's translation, that actually uses the phrase, peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Georgia sent me that passage yesterday after I told her about Royce. It's an awesome passage. We can rejoice in suffering because a peace treaty has been signed. The war is over. We have peace with God now. And if we have peace with God, then it becomes possible that we too can become peacemakers. I said earlier you can't make widgets if you don't know what a widget is or what it looks like, but in a similar way, we can't be peacemakers if we haven't experienced peace. 
And we will never experience peace until we have been reconciled to God, and that can only happen in Christ. You cannot be a peacemaker without being first a peace receiver. So yes, Jesus is giving us an impossible task because we can never do this in our own strength. But his intention is not for you to go and just peace a little harder. He wants you to accept his peace. Paul's point is that Jesus didn't wait until you surrendered to make peace. He died for you while you were still a declared enemy and still fighting. And now he offers peace, and the terms are very generous. He makes all the concessions, and you get the Holy Spirit and hope. And then you get to go and share it with others, because that's what peacemakers do. And no other peace matters if people don't have peace with God. The point of this beatitude, I think, is often misunderstood. It is not to go and create world peace. That would be nice, but that's not the main goal. Jesus didn't bless those who protested the latest Roman war. And he didn't bless the peace lovers. He blesses the peace makers. And the only way you can make peace is by receiving it first. Earlier in the week, I, I was thinking about Colt 45. Not the malt liquor that Billy D. Williams used to sell, but uh, the, the gun. The uh, Colt single-action army revolver. It's one of the most popular guns in American history. It was used by the U.S. Army in the old days, frontiersmen, lawmen, cowboys, ranchers. And it, <clears throat> it earned the nickname, they call it, the Peacemaker. Which is a cool name for a gun, let's be honest. But the implication is that you can't make peace without the threat of force. Somebody needs the power to make peace. And someone also needs to keep it. Keeping the peace means we need an enforcer. We need a strong man in the situation. The Pax Romana came courtesy of, of the Roman legions. That's what kept that in effect. And the Pax Americana comes courtesy of, well, the Marines. Not UN blue helmets, that's for sure. Am I right? <laughs> But peace with God comes courtesy of Jesus Christ. He fought for it and he keeps it. He is the ultimate peacemaker and the only peacekeeper. I reflected briefly on when Jesus was entering Jerusalem in Luke 19. He weeps for the city and he laments that they don't know what would have made for peace. He says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. They didn't know. But brothers and sisters, if we know Jesus, we know what makes for peace. Because we know the original, the ultimate peacemaker. He's the one who became a man just so he could sign the treaty on our behalf. And if you know the peacemaker, you can share him with others. In effect, if you are in Christ, you become a deputy peacemaker. We have the peace that the world needs. Now, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I think I lost the thread of that this week a little bit. Um, last night in particular, I had several fits of despair while writing this message. I felt like I was not capable of this. And I have not really been at peace for the past few days. I have been troubled. 
and I have not really been living and thinking and acting as if I know the peacemaker. Beloved, I, I need Jesus. I need him badly, and I think we have all needed him this week, and we need the peace that he makes. And we never outgrow that need. We seem to be aware sometimes that unbelievers need peace with God. Of course, that seems obvious, but it's not as if we as believers ever get weaned off of that need. Everyone in this room needs Jesus. Believers should just be more aware of it than unbelievers are. Now, we've been watching hardship in the world this week, and we have suffered great heartache right here at home. And if you're like me, you may have let sorrow and worry get a foothold in you. Don't despair. Just repent and ask him for his peace again. And maybe you've never asked him for his peace. That's okay. There's no time like the present. But we all need peace. And we need the peace that passes understanding. We need the Prince of Peace to come and establish peace in our troubled hearts. And he will do it. All we need to do is ask him. He'll make peace in us because that is what peacemakers do. And Jesus, the Son of God himself, will make it so that we too can be called sons and daughters of God. It's a pretty good deal. Now, I had a final thought connected to peace in these recent events of the last 24 hours or so. I was uh, doing something of a word study on peace in scripture, and I made an interesting discovery. I mentioned before it appears hundreds of times in the scripture, but it makes its very first appearance in Genesis 15. And of all things, it refers to the grave. It comes from the lips of God himself. God promises Abraham in Genesis 15 that he will go to his fathers in peace. I thought, how sweet is that? That peace is God's promise to his people in death. I thought that was an encouraging word for this week, that in Christ there is peace even in death. He's our ultimate peacemaker. And he was the true son of God, but he came to make us brothers and sisters, so now we get to share even in that title. So Jesus doesn't expect you to go fix the world. That's not the point. And the point is not to give peace a chance. He simply tells us that the peacemaker is happy, and in Christ, that's what we are. If you know the peacemaker, then you are a peacemaker. And you have the peace that everyone else needs and is looking for because he made it. And the reward he promises us is that we will be called sons and daughters of the living God, and God's sons and daughters have peace with their father. God does not feud with his children. And even when we die, we will go to him in peace. Psalm 37 says it this way, there is a future for the man of peace. Beloved, that's what Royce experienced yesterday. And if we're found in Christ someday, we will too. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, 
We know we are not very good at making peace, Lord. It's another impossible task your son sets before us, but he doesn't do that to crush us, we know. The most important peace that we could ever have is already ours in him. We thank you for sending him. We thank you for reconciling us to yourself. Lord, we thank you for giving us your peace. And we thank you that that peace is real whether or not we feel it. Lord, that if we are in Christ, whether or not we feel turbulent in our hearts, anxious, troubled, worried, Lord, just because we don't feel your peace doesn't mean the peace isn't there. We are no longer at war with you, Lord. We have peace with you. And I don't know what more we could ask for. Help us to rest in that, Lord. Carry us now throughout the week, Lord, with all of the burdens that we carry. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.